My guest is Jonathan Friedland. Jonathan Friedland is a Guardian columnist and presenter of BBC Radio 4's contemporary history series, The Long View. His latest book has just been published, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Good to be with you, Paul. Really good. Well, my first question is, so who is The Escape Artist and why did you want to write a book about him? The Escape Artist is Rudolf Verber, who was born as Walter Rosenberg, who is in a, in, in a tiny group, I mean, really a handful of Jews who escaped from Auschwitz and successfully made their way to freedom. Um, of those who actually physically broke out of Auschwitz uh, themselves, uh, there were only four, and he and his escape partner, Fred Wetzler, were the first. And they did it in April 1944, and they did it to warn the world. Um, they did it to let the world know about Auschwitz, because at the time that was, in effect, secret knowledge, um, which they wanted to smuggle out because they wanted it to stop. They wanted the mass killing and the mass slaughter to stop. And and Verbe himself had become convinced. He did it instantly when he was 19 years old. Uh, he arrived at Auschwitz two, nearly two years earlier as a 17-year-old and became rapidly convinced that the only reason why this uniquely new uh, institution in human history, a killing centre, devised and built solely for the purpose of mass extermination. The only reason it could function was through the ignorance of its victims, the, the fact that those who arrived at the camp didn't know what was going to happen to them. And therefore, he thought the only way to stop it is to make sure this is known about so that people boarding those trains to Auschwitz know what fate awaits them. And so, with in some ways, the arrogance of youth, he thought, age 17, 18, somebody has to tell people what's happening here it might as well be me. Uh, and in the process, uh, he had to commit to pulling off what nobody had done until then. No Jewish prisoner at that point had ever escaped from Auschwitz. And he set about a plan to do just that. Well, as you say throughout the book, Wilber uh, is a relatively unknown figure, not totally unknown, obviously. So how did you come across him? And what made you think there was a book there to be written? Well, I had first come across him when I was the same age he had been, when he had escaped from Auschwitz. When I was 19, uh, I saw the, the epic documentary Claude Landsman's Shoah, the right. nine and a half hour long landmark film about the Holocaust. Which is, you know, if you've seen it, you know, it's an extremely unusual film. It's, there's no archive in it. It's just an hour upon hour of interviews with those who were close up and who were there at the time, witnessing the process of industrialized slaughter. And sitting there in the cinema, watching this film, it seemed to me at the time a procession of old and broken men, really. I now know that actually the people in that film were not that old, but they were, to my 19-year-old self, they looked very old. And then one person explodes off the screen with huge charisma. Uh, he's speaking in English, whereas the others are in Polish or yeah. Czech or Russian or whatever. They're all grey-haired and hunched. He stands you know, tall, or actually not tall, but he held himself as yeah. if he was tall, tanned. Um, smiling uh, as well, you say. Smiling often. with this unnerving smile, this movie star charisma. He's wearing a tan leather coat. He's in New York City. Uh, you know, at one point, the Twin Towers are behind him. He looks like Al Pacino in Scarface or something. <laughs> and he mentions almost as an aside that he had escaped from Auschwitz. And 
because of landsman's focus on the method of slaughter that doesn't really interest landsman landsman doesn't ask him much about it but i at the time thought what you know i knew even as a 19 year old that jews didn't escape from auschwitz that just didn't really ever happen and yet this person had and so i never forgot his name um i would you know pick up the old fragment of his story here and there when i you know in late years scrolling online or whatever but it stayed with me as being an example partly because i knew his motive i mean it is an absolutely thrilling escape story. I've now read quite a few wartime, Second World War escapes, and we all, people of my age, grew up seeing The yeah. Great Escape or watching Escape from Colditz, that kind Wood, of thing. Wooden horse. Yeah, all of those things. And yet I think I can say with some confidence, this is the most extraordinary escape, even more than those, just because it was so difficult. Yeah. And so there was, on one level, it was an, I knew it was an amazing adventure story. But the other thing, to answer your the second point of your question, which is what made me think there was a book, that came much later, which was in recent years, I would say from 2016 onwards, I particularly, but a whole lot of writers and journalists became very preoccupied with these questions around truth and post-truth mm. and Trump and Brexit and so on. And I was writing about it a lot. And my mind sort of increasingly went back to this story, which especially once I reminded myself of its details, it really turned on one young man's determination to get the truth out from underneath a mountain of lies. Um, and he, it seemed almost like a kind of parable for our mm. time, that there, that Verber's great insight, even as a teenage boy was, that the difference between truth and lies could be the difference between life and death. And he understood that very, very young. And I was, you know, writing columns, for example, about post-truth saying how important it was. And I could feel that readers were thinking, yeah, it's very bad that politicians are lying, but they couldn't really feel why it was a mortal danger. As it happened, the coronavirus came along and people saw that, yeah, if, if a president tells people to inject themselves with bleach, that can take lives, you know. But still, the most vivid illustration of the importance of truth over lies remains the holocaust event and the person who em embodies that particular dimension of it is rudolf herber so for a writer and you know my as you mentioned in the introduction i mean i've written non-fiction books but i've also written thrillers under a pseudonym and this story seemed to suddenly speak to both because it was simultaneously an genuinely thrilling adventure story how he pulled this thing off but also raised what I thought were tremendously uh, important and even sort of grave questions for our time. But in order for you to, to write yourself this truthful account of Verber's um, ex exploits, if you can call them exploits, you had, and maybe explain to our listeners a bit more detail, access to Verber's uh, two wives and, and who gave you various pieces of information, documentation, maybe that, because what... I maybe I'm talking too much maybe about the methodology and the research, but that's what it, the book is very vivid. And maybe listeners have not read the book yet need to understand and uh, know that it is a very vivid uh, recounting what happened to Verba. But in, not, in order for that vividness to come across, so you had to have this information at your fingertips. You didn't, you couldn't just make it up wearing your yes, novelist hat. That's right. I mean, I wanted it to read, and I've been very gratified. Reviews have said it reads like a novel, it reads like a thriller. You're mm. actually minute by minute 
um it's not with the sort of detachment of an academic history book you know mm. um you're you're kind of right in the action of how he reacts to this moment that moment but i simultaneously felt particularly around this subject that it had to be absolutely scrupulously factually accurate i didn't want anybody given the questions that swirl around uh, you know the obscenity of holocaust denial i didn't want anyone to be able to say well look this is just made up so uh, the, now as it happened there are all around the Auschwitz story, I mean, it is, which is in some ways paradoxical given denial, the most documented event. I mean, there is so much documentary evidence and eyewitness accounts by victims and perpetrators, diaries, letters, etc. So much of that. But about him in particular, Yes, and, meet, you, and, meet, and meeting his two wives in particular, that was interesting. Well, I'm going to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. come on to that. I mean, around him in particular, there was, you know, specialist historians had told the story. He himself had written a very useful and good, actually, high-quality memoir written 60 years ago, uh, original title, I Cannot Forgive. But the breakthrough for me was looking around and realising first that his widow, uh, his second wife, who was much younger, almost a generation younger than him, was still alive and is still alive, uh, Robin Verber, uh, then living in New York, and she was just terrifically helpful opening up uh, her own, you know, personal memories, but also photographs and letters and so on. But I looked and saw that he had been married before, um, and his first wife had, as far as I knew, had for a while, I didn't know how long, had lived in London, I thought, in the 60s, and had become an academic. But I knew nothing more about her than that, and I called around and, and I couldn't find people who knew about her. And I just sent this you know, speculative email, which a lot of journalists will know what, when you do this, you send an email almost, to an, in effect, a made-up email address. I just knew she'd been an academic at University College London, UCL. I constructed first name, dot, last name, yeah. sent an email. I thought in 10 seconds it's going to bounce back, undeliverable. And then 20 minutes later, I thought there will be an, a message from an administrator saying, yeah. you know, uh, this she's no longer there. And I worked out she'd be 93 years old. I thought that I might well get an email from a bereaved child saying that yeah. she died 20 years ago. Instead, about an hour or so later, I got an email back saying, Dear Jonathan, it would be very good to meet you. I live in Muswell Hill in North London, about 20 minutes away from where I live. Why didn't you come and see me tomorrow or Thursday? You know, uh, It was the COVID summer of 2020. We sat in her garden. And what was extraordinary about her, Goethe Verbova, was that, yes, she had been Rudy's first wife in post-war Prague, but also she had known him before Auschwitz. They had been right. teenage sweethearts right, in a yeah. small Slovak town of Tarnava. So she knew the pre-Auschwitz Rudy. She knew him as Walter Rosenberg, 14-year-old boy. She had a crush on him when she was 12. Mm. And that was so valuable because I got a sense of the man before this Auschwitz experience, the person before. He was just a boy. And after our, I think, fifth encounter, we, we talked for a long time uh, in her garden, socially distanced. She said, look, well, you know, I've asked my grandson to come because there's something upstairs I want him to bring down and I can't carry it. Uh, she was frail at that point, and he came down with a red suitcase, which the pair of them almost ceremoniously handed over to me. And Goethe said, those are Rudy's letters. Wow. Um, and it was a suitcase packed with, there were some photographs, but there were these handwritten letters. Right. And they went back decades. And um, it was at that moment that I actually thought, you know, I'm somehow meant to write this book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this isn't just a sort of journalistic exercise. There's something else going on here. This, I, I need to do it, and I'm meant to do it. 
and um you know they were they were tremendously revealing and they coupled with interviews with people who'd worked with him uh, later life scientists he became a scientist i spoke to colleagues i spoke to as we said to both wives but those letters the, and the other things that rudolf Weber wrote meant i was able to put together a detailed account that means when you read the book and you hear you see me to say that you know rudy felt a bead of sweat on yes, his back yes. that's because there has been a letter or a diary or, right. a, or a writing by him where he said at that moment there was a bead of sweat on my back nothing is is um out of my imagination you said you were very uh sensitive to the the need to uh, to write factually so you wouldn't be open to attack for for any kind of you know fake news overlay um i hope this is not too indelicate johnson but you're a, a jewish person yourself what strikes me in the book is how in, in a sense you how dispassionately you write about the, the horrors that are taking place in auschwitz uh, you, 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 there's no emotion coming through. Were you aware of that uh, kind of sense of anger or in, indignation? Did you have to keep that in check or were you were just disciplined enough to say, let me tell things as, it, as they are, they're horrific anyway, they don't, mean, don't need me to embellish them in any way? I think it was that very last point. As it happens, I have written on the Holocaust quite a bit just journalistically. I've interviewed survivors a, a few times. I've you know, for The Guardian, I went to Auschwitz for the 70th anniversary of the liberation ceremony. I did it again for the 75th, which was actually just a month or two before the pandemic in, in 2020. And I have learned in writing about this subject that absolutely less is more, mm. um, that you do not need any, you know, fine yes. writing. If you yes. and, and, and it's actually, um, it doesn't work and it's completely unnecessary, but also it it, it, it sort of turns uh, this important event into, it somehow feels exploitative or kitschy. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I, I, I've le learned it in, 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 in the last sort of 20 or more years, in, in it, whenever I've gone close to this subject, and I found that there was a kind of register writing-wise that I was somehow used to, which was very economical quite spare and that and i think that people understand it's interesting you say about dispassionate but people almost pick up on the emotion that isn't being said yes by absolutely by uh, and and yeah so it, it that came to it wasn't actually something i particularly sat down it was just a register that i think i had adopted before and i went to immediately for this subject and there are other subjects when the subject itself can seem superficially dull or the stakes are low where you need to inject a bit of fire an old editor of mine used to say you know sometimes you need to bring out the string section you know just to <laughs> make it elevate it a bit in this subject you don't need to do any of that people once you're talking about an event where six million civilians were murdered it doesn't need any ramping up from the writer it needs if anything some dialing down so that the facts themselves can breathe um, so that was sort of the approach. And the interesting thing is, I didn't really realise this till afterwards, but I think it's right, is that in some ways I was quite led by him mm. because that was also, as it happens, yeah. the tone of voice he would adopt. And so when you're immersed in someone's letters and, and, and mm. interviews, I didn't mention that before. I mean, he the really, to my mind, best chroniclers of the Holocaust, and I would put Claude Landsman in that list, mm. They did seek out Rudolf Werber. 
um, they understood what an important witness he was. So there were hundreds of pages of transcripts of really detailed interviews. He was also called as an expert witness in trials. So there's court testimony. So there was no shortage of his words. So I spent, even though he died in 2006, I was able to spend a lot of time in his speech. And that was how he would be, quite meticulously factual. And as you picked up before, even with this kind of sardonic grin, mm which really unnerved people, it unnerved landsmen, because it seemed macabre that he would be smiling. But it was a kind of bemused registering of the absurdity of mankind, the cruelty of mankind, that these things happened. Yeah. And it, it was also, I think, pro probably some kind of coping mechanism for him. Well, if listeners are interested, they can see some of these interviews on, on YouTube, as I have done. You touched uh, uh, earlier, Jonathan, the fact that there was this, I'm not sure subterfuge is the right word. Auschwitz was not a prisoner of war camp. It was a place to, to, to kill Jews. Uh, and people, even non-specialist historians, maybe think they, they kind of knew all there was to know. But I think this was almost cynical uh, obsession by, on the part of the Nazis to delude and to dupe the, the poor prisoners that they were actually going to some other new settlement or they go to whatever. They weren't going into uh, gas chambers or whatever. That was quite well planned because they realised that that was the, the most efficient way to kill the most number of Jews per day. And uh, maybe you could uh, spend time talking about that, the kind of ruthless efficiency, but also laced with this dishonest, uh, almost charming way of dealing with their prisoners to get yes. them to do what they wanted to do, which I found rather fascinating. And I thought I knew all that, but I didn't. No. I mean, it's interesting that you say that a lot of people who've, who really did consider themselves deeply expert in this subject have said that they've, you know, get learned new things. And that's partly because, you know, I myself, you know, as I said, I've talked to and met Holocaust survivors, read lots over many, many years, when I immersed myself in this story, I realized how, you know, little I knew and how much Rudolf Erber as a witness had to tell us. Partly this is something about him, incidentally, which is he's just this sort of ultra witness. He was in Auschwitz for nearly two years. I mean, that made him vanishingly rare. You know, the life expectancy of a Jew in Auschwitz was measured in hours uh, because, as you say, it was a killing center and people would arrive on trains and within hours they would be in the gas chambers. Um a small percentage, between 5 and 10%, would be taken off to work in the concentration camp, the kind of slave labour camp that was bolted on to the death camp. They were they were two of them. I mean, bolted on is wrong because they grew up simultaneously, but, but that was conjoined with it. And they would, that was another form of murder, actually. It was annihilation through labour, was the yeah, Nazi phrase. Right. And they would often last no more than two or three months maximum, Um those people and so often the survivors we read about are people who got there in the last three months of Auschwitz and they feel they were still alive at liberation. Verbal was so unusual because it was nearly two years and that was because he went from job to job and we can guess and work all the speculate all the reasons why he was able to live longer he himself often put it down to random good luck but it meant he was an eyewitness for he worked for 10 months on the railway platform known as the ramp where these transports of Jews would arrive. And that's where he saw the very thing you're talking about, which is that deception and the telling of the, the telling to the Jews of lies, telling them that they were going to be resettled in the East to new lives, new homes, and new communities. It wasn't just, as I think I did think before working on this book, a kind of cynical uh, and, and sort of bleak kind of humour you know, a sick joke. It was crucial to the method. 
And that was because what Verba understood watching, standing there on that platform night after night, was that the Jews obeying with relative order and quiet the orders that they were given was essential to the smooth running of the operation. That if there had been chaos, mm. if Jews had started stampeding and running off in a hundred different directions, it would have been impossible for the Nazis. They couldn't have done at the speed they were doing these, this orderly killing and this efficient killing. It was central to the method. And uh, he and they went to great, great lengths. So they would lie to them at the beginnings by saying, you're going to be resettled into the East. They gave them meticulous instructions about what they should bring. So it absolutely yeah. would make you think we're going to live. Pots and pans, blankets, exercise yeah. books for the children, school books, because obviously the children are going to yeah. go to school. So people thought they were coming for new lives. That's one piece of it. But on the platform, even, the Nazis would often be, as you were referring to, quite solicitous if there was time, different if there was a hurry. But if there was time, they'd be courteous. They would suggest that the people who brought them to the camp were the barbarians. The Slovaks have mistreated you, keeping yeah. in these terrible cattle trucks. Now their order will be restored. And because of the Germans' reputation for order, and as the civilized nation of Goethe and Kant and so on, a lot of the Jews believed that and were quite relieved when they got to Auschwitz. Ah, yeah. Our terrible journey is over. Now our new lives will begin. And they exploited that. And of course, famously, in one of the uh, gas chambers, there were fake shower heads yeah. in the ceiling so that the Jews would believe even at the last moment yes. that they were going to be showered. And being told, leave your possessions here. You can pick them up on the way out when you finish your shower. I mean, the cynicism is quite extraordinary. And, and, and the efficiency. Absolutely. And went to the point of, you know, make sure you tie your shoes together so you'll be able to find them afterwards. There was going to be no afterwards. Yeah. Um, but that was central. So he understood then that the the deception was the key. And therefore, the, and he was really struck. He worked in later on. This was a big part of why he was able to survive as a registrar, in his own phrase, a barracks pen pusher, keeping the numbers, uh, it's literally taking registration of the number of inmates. And it meant he was had to do a sort of an initial signing everyone in, including yeah. the Jewish inmates. And to a man and woman, none of these arrivals ever knew what Auschwitz yeah. meant. They didn't know. They, they hadn't heard the reputation. They weren't frightened of the word. And that's when he thought, right, the key is somebody has to get out and tell, particularly the Jews, not, you know, let, we might come on to this with his report yeah. and how it reached yeah. the Allies and so on. But his focus was the Jews of Europe will not behave in this orderly fashion if they know knowledge is everything he understood that yeah we, we should move on because we're running out of time to once he has escaped but, uh, but maybe there's a segue into that again the kind of the, the this double subterfuge if i can call that the nazis so the internal subterfuge for the poor prisoner but then on the outside world again i you think you know all this but they they seem that nazis seem almost obsessed by keeping from the outside world what they were up to. One is kind of assumes that the, the Allies and uh, the rest of the world knew what was happening, but of course, maybe not as much as, the, as they should have done. That, and that's one reason why maybe, and that's where you now move on to the, the second part of your book, he's escaped there, but, but he has uh, great difficulty in convincing many people of the, of the atrocities of what's been happening, because they yeah. simply weren't aware of it. Yes. I mean, he, he had always believed the proof that the world didn't know about Auschwitz was the fact that Auschwitz existed. Mm. The fact that killing was going on every day was proof that nobody around in the world can possibly know, because if they did, they would obviously stop this. Um, you know, the Americans and the British would, would bomb this place and stop it. And so that was proof to him. 
it turned out he wasn't right about that. Um, absolutely. He escapes from Auschwitz. I, we, we won't give it away. Partly we don't have time, but also I want people to read the book. It's yeah. an extraordinary thing how they escape. They spot a sort of gap in the Nazi defences, not a physical one, but a one a, a flaw in the Nazi procedure. And with ingenuity and extraordinary physical courage, they escape. Once they do that, they have to cross, of course, Nazi-occupied Poland, crossing forests and mountains and rivers to smuggle their way into Slovakia, their native country, he and Fred Wetzler. They meet up there with the remnant Jewish community of Slovakia. And in a basement, in hiding in the small Slovak town of Zilina, they out pours out of them everything they know meticulously about Auschwitz. And, uh, and they, of course, couldn't write down a word. So Verba and this could almost be another story in itself, but Verba has the most extraordinary memory. And so he's recorded the data of pretty well every transport, the date, the number of people on it, the point of origin. They set it out in this report. It turns out to be 32 single-spaced pages, but of course it then has to get out to the world. And so there's another kind of escape as the report breaks out, crosses occupied Europe hand-to-hand, -hand, smuggled, yeah translated as well in it has to be translated in secret i've put together i think that this book is the first account of how the report gets out which is itself an amazing and thrilling story yeah. involving you know re rebel priests and secret yeah. typists in in garret rooms making illicit copies etc but somehow that report reaches churchill roosevelt the pope and Verber, in his sort of imagination thought that second those people read it of course they will take action and instead, and I've been able to put this together too through, you know, foreign office records and records out of Washington. Instead, it hits this kind of bureaucracy and it's a mixture of practicality, of prejudice, but also incredulity. So practicality, there's issues about can the Air Force yeah. bomb Auschwitz? Will it be practical? Will it divert resources from the war effort? Prejudice, you have people in London saying, I think we've heard enough from these wailing Jews. You know, we have to allow for a certain degree of Jewish exaggeration. There's, there's anti-Semitic prejudice, similar remarks made in Washington. And then finally, and, the, and to me most interestingly, there is this barrier of disbelief and that people, even those who are really well-intentioned, just cannot quite believe what they are reading. And that's because they lived in a world that didn't know about the, Auschwitz or the Holocaust. You know, we have grown up knowing about those yeah. things and therefore knowing they can happen. But at the time, um, you know, they, they, they struggled to digest and believe it. And one of the, you know, that led to a failure to pass on his warning, even to the people he wanted to reach most, which was the Jews of Hungary, who were the last community right. not yet ensnared in the Nazi dragnet. And Verbal was desperate because he knew they were going to be next for that warning to get to those people. And instead, for a variety of reasons, not only incredulity, unfortunately, the Hungarian Jewish leadership made a decision not to pass on the warning to their own community. And you know, 437,000 Jews from Hungary were transported to their deaths almost entirely in Auschwitz. And that was after his escape. And that burnt up the Berber for the rest of his life, that fact that people who could have been warned were not warned. We should mention that on the other side of the ledger, even though Verbe himself didn't put great emphasis on it, the fact that the report got out and eventually was made public, it did make it into the newspapers, uh, you know, admittedly weeks after his escape, two months later, even in late June, 
once it was out in public, yes, Roosevelt and the others did yeah. act diplomatically. They put they cabled the leader of Hungary and said, you will all be done for war crimes if you assist in these deportations any longer. And so the deportations from the capital, from Budapest, were halted. And I believe as a result, and I've, it's, historians would chime with this, that Rudolf Erber and his fellow escapee Wetzler between them saved 200,000 Jewish lives uh, by uh, ensuring that the Jews of Budapest were not deported, which is why I say that Verba absolutely belongs alongside Oscar Schindler or Anne Frank or Primo Levi as one of the stories that define the Holocaust and that he himself is one of the towering figures, a hero of that period. Well, this book certainly uh, goes a long way to making sure that his profile is al alongside that pantheon of the people you mentioned. We have to leave it there. Jonathan Friedland, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.